0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Cole Simmons, who is using Flask to power a service that lets you extract and analyze key data from real estate property documents. Cole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Like you said, my name is Cole Simmons. I'm the co-founder of Abstract
1: CRE. What we do is we help commercial real estate professionals extract key information from their documents. For leases, that might be something like the lease commencement date, the rental rate. Uh, For loan documents, that might be something like a maturity date. We do that by having an AI that helps the folks that are extracting this data find it, approve it, and then put that data to use to streamline their workflows and make better decisions faster.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, real estate is not my forte, but I would imagine like if you were to, I guess, rent out a home or buy a home, there's there's a lot of documents that come with that.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think there's been a lot more innovation in the residential real estate space for that reason. As software engineers buy or sell a home, they are exposed to the inefficiencies in that machine. So there has been a lot of in- innovation in kind of these listing services and kind of streamlining, even on the rental side of things, kind of streamlining the that rental process. But commercial real estate, despite you know being all around us all the time, is very insular and you don't really see how inefficient all these processes are. Uh, I didn't see how inefficient it was until... I started talking to my co-founder, Max, who, after graduating from Georgia Tech, worked in commercial real estate acquisitions for uh, close to 10 years. He was telling me about how long it'll take for an asset in the largest asset class in the US, if not the world, to change hands. I mean, you're talking about maybe six months at best. Um, It's extremely, extremely illiquid. What we discovered was that a large part of that time was spent with analysts. Maybe they have two monitors with the document on one and Excel spreadsheet on the other. That spreadsheet will have whatever their internal template is for the data that they're looking for. And then they're just looking back and forth between this, say it's a lease and, the Excel spreadsheet, copy-pasting values, um, and then they store it. I mean, in the best case scenario, they co-locate it with that document in box. Um, More often than not, these just kind of end up scattered all over the place. And because there's no link between the data that ends up in that Excel spreadsheet and its source, nobody bothers to verify it because then to verify it, you have to find what document that occurred in, where that document is stored, where in the document that data point occurred. Uh, So it it goes unverified. Um, And and the impetus for starting this was was Max um, saw a deal happen where an analyst at the brokerage fat fingered a lease expiration date for the anchor tenant. And nobody discovered this until just a couple of days before bids were due. Because not only does the brokerage have to do this process before they can put together the marketing materials, then all the potential bidders do this to verify that that data is correct. Uh, A lot of redundancy there. So a couple days before bids are due, somebody discovers that that expiration date was wrong. They have to cancel the whole sale, restart it, lost a lot of the potential bidders and ended up causing a swing in value for the property of millions and millions of dollars. So by... Can, uh, maintaining a link between a data point and its location in the document, you can verify with one click that it's not only correct, but you can also kind of see the surrounding legal legalese. Uh, the traditional kind of uh, industry name for this process is called abstracting. These spreadsheets are called abstracts, which is where we get our name from. So that was kind of the core piece of the app that we really started with. Our core hypothesis that we discovered after doing customer discovery was that by maintaining a link between a data point and its location in the document that you can save them a whole lot of time and also improve the data integrity to prevent them from making multi-million dollar mistakes. Since then, we've kind of focused on not only making that data more useful, but also improving the speed of extraction with AI assistance.
0: Okay. Yeah, that sounds uh, really valuable because, I mean, like a six-month turnaround time, like I get upset if my CI test takes take longer than like 30 seconds, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they don't have that same level of impatience that it feels like the rest of the world kind of has, has gotten to have in the last decade or two. Um, and there's a lot of kind of resignation to their fate in some sense of the word because... I mean even interfacing with our users we'll we'll put chat like a live chat within the app we'll email them but it's really not until we get them on the phone and give them get them to give us feedback that they're like oh yeah you know we we heard y'all were were nice and wanted feedback and we're trying to improve um the platform but you know they they kind of just get resigned to this windows 98 looking software that was built by folks that didn't really care about UX or UI, and hasn't really improved in a decade or two. Uh, so, some of the people, some of the users that we've talked to, you know, they they'll start their first job as an analyst, and for the first couple of months, they're you know impatient with these turnaround times, and they're kind of wishing things were better. But at a certain point. Um, You know, you you kind of just get used to the pace of things.
0: Right. So speaking of pace here, uh, how long did it take you to develop like an MVP, like the first shippable product?
1: Yeah. So we started in January of 2016 was the first time I ever talked to Max about this. So we're about to come up on our five year anniversary. At the time, I was a sophomore at Stanford. So I told him... Kind of what a lot of investors have told us since then, which is, if what you say about this industry is true, then you know, fantastic. This is a very poignant uh, pain, and there are customers that are willing to pay, and and it's not a crowded space. But we need to double check that. We can't take your your word uh, in the absolute sense. So, really, for the rest of my sophomore year at Stanford, which went all the way up until June of 2016, we just did customer discovery. We talked to as many people as we could, got them on the phones. Um, For me, (laughs) I spent a lot of that time just asking really dumb questions about how commercial real estate even works. Max was able to ask a little bit smarter questions. At that time, we were focused in on this problem of the transaction time and what can we do to make that faster. What we realized was anything you do at that point is kind of a Band-Aid on the wound and that it's all really a symptom of bad document and data management practices during the holding period. So we've uh, shifted our focus to property management, to asset management, um, kind of kept that hypothesis, validated it. But then to really validate the hypothesis from there, I mean, you have to put something in front of somebody and in some sense try to sell it. Because if you ask somebody if they like something, then people have this instinct to be nice. And that's in commercial real estate where people have that instinct the least. You know, people are don't hesitate to be kind of brass and blunt. But we spent really the rest of 2016 building this proof of concept on Firebase. It was really just a, a front end and the back end was just the Firebase real time database, even though we didn't really have a need for the real time aspect of it. We uh, still use that just because it's pretty dead simple to get data in and out of it. Uh, the biggest thing that we invalidated there is that we had this idea that we had come up with a template, a list of fields that would be universal. Max was cross-referencing all these lease admin textbooks. Uh, We were getting these internal lease abstract templates from uh, some of the big names in the industry. And what we ultimately realized was everybody is trying to capture this data differently. And we were kind of foolish to think that we could have this universal template. So around the end of the year, 2016, um, we validated that people do love the ability to link data to its source, and then we realized that we needed to build out additional complexity in terms of allowing users to specify the shape of their data. What fields, what are those fields types, um, so that you can kind of add these constraints in a way that's often broken in Excel. If you have a lease agreement date column in your Excel template, that should obviously be a date. but When people are doing this abstracting, they'll put in, you know, any sort of thing. So um, we started on the full enterprise version of the product at the top of 2017. And then from there, I mean, we didn't have our first paying customer until about May of 2019. So it took a little bit of time. We kept thinking that, we were one feature away, really, from this being a sellable enterprise product. And Max and I had both moved back to our respective parents' homes in, in Georgia. He grew up about 30 minutes away from me. So whenever my friends would ask when I was moving out, i would be like, oh, you know, it's, we're, we're just a couple of months away. Uh, as is the nature, I guess, with enterprise software. There's a lot that's table stakes, And it wasn't really even until this year where I felt that we had finally kind of gotten over these common hurdles of the things that are considered table stakes. The last kind of front on that being really specific permissions so that everybody can only see the data that they need to see um, or edit it or delete it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been a journey. It's something that... Now multiple companies are using all day, every day to do their work, which is something that's eternally gratifying. And a lot of times I have to step back and appreciate that because for years, for years, I was just trying to picture somebody using this to do their job. Um, So whenever I I kind of get frustrated um, that, you know, a deal that somebody kind of, did a handshake deal on and it falls through. Uh, I have to just step back and appreciate that the people are using it and that it's, you know, it's alive. And a lot of the things, a lot of the features that we hoped would work like on the AI front, which for months seemed like maybe this problem wasn't very solvable with AI, or at least not to the extent that we eventually ended up getting it to work.
0: Right. So for those two years between 2017 and 2019, were you just working on the project full-time by yourself, programming-wise?
1: Yeah. Yep. So Max quit his job uh, March of 2016, and he actually moved to Bali while I was finishing out school. Uh, But then from then on, we both were uh, full-time dedicated to this. At a certain point, Max ended up doing some uh, consulting work. And then we <laughs> split his paycheck so that we could pay the bills. Even though we'd both moved back home, there's miscellaneous expenses. And you know, at a certain point, we did move out. Um, we were able to raise a small angel round, but have otherwise been bootstrapped. And for that reason, uh, still to this day, I'm, I'm the only uh, software engineer. I think Max and I have really complementary skill sets. Obviously, he has the industry expertise and is a good salesman. Uh, he also has a good eye for design. I, I think we both have, it feels <laughs> egotistic to say, but good taste. Even if you know we're not designers by trade, and sometimes it's hard for us to actualize something that we are kind of innately satisfied with, we're able to collaborate on that design front and kind of bounce something back and forth until it ends up in a state where you know, we, we both think that it looks really good. And you know, especially the bar is pretty low when you compare it against the rest of commercial real estate software. But uh, yeah, you know, so we collaborate on the design front and then I do all of the dev work. We've worked with a couple of contractors over the years, especially like right after we raised. And there were a couple of things we wanted to really um, rush out the door. We spent a little bit of money on that, but still just the two of us.
0: Nice. And yeah, design work is always funny. I feel like a lot of developers, myself included, it's like, give us a blank white document and it's very hard to design something really nice. But if you showed me like five examples of this, 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 and that, I feel like I can pick the one that I like the best, you know, like design wise. Like it's so much easier to pick something after seeing it versus having to like invent the design from scratch.
1: Totally. And I feel that same way about honestly, even writing code. Like sometimes I've been working in this code base that's, that I've been working in for months or years. And then when it comes to the point where I have to start a new repo for abstract or or maybe like some little small side project uh, so I can explore a language I'm interested in, kind of forget (laughs) what to do when you're at the very, very start. But yeah, on the design front, I mean, it's, evolved over time i think once you establish these patterns within the app then it's pretty easy when you add a new feature to just be like what's you know the best way we can keep this consistent with this sort of visual language um, and the way people expect to interact with the app and then every now and again will one of us will hit kind of the boiling point on some aspect of the design and then we'll maybe tweak that and go back and get everything kind of uh, in line. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times when we have new features, we'll just almost do uh, a lo-fi version of it and pretty it up later or add some more complexity to it later. But we just kind of want to see if people are going to use it at all first and then kind of focus on, you know, how it looks and and how powerful it is later.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good way to go about it. And by the way, earlier when you were talking about, you needed to introduce some complexity because it was more than just having these pre-made templates. Was it at that point then when, when you started to pick up uh, Flask and Python to develop the backend? And like, what was your motivation for choosing Flask?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the complexity of the app has stemmed from the fact that types are not very predictable. Uh, it's all based on this, this user's template. There is a kind of a subset of types there, but when you have these sort of generic data objects, I guess, and then so sort of kind of figuring out what's inside of that is dependent on what template field that's following, that individual data point is following. When we started on you know, the full production version of the app, I actually chose Go at first because, oh, and I also chose Cloud Datastore. As the, as the database, because I knew that we weren't going to be able to have strong typing constraints on the database level and on the front-end level. And I at least wanted this sort of typed intermediary layer uh, to pass through. In retrospect, I mean, I don't think that was a great decision. We today use Postgres and then just have separate tables depending on kind of what the type is um because with cloud data store we kind of had this type agnostic value column but then it was easy for data to get entered into that in a way that was just incorrect and so then when you pulled it out and tried to do something with it uh, a lot of times on the the front end you'd get some sort of runtime error um, and then Go as a web server, it was it was fine. I mean, uh, Go is ostensibly really good at what it's more often used for, um, these sort of services that need strong concurrency. I never really got good enough at Go, honestly, to be able to uh, tell you exactly how to best use it. Uh, and I, th- I know it's also evolved a good amount since then, but I did experience just a lot of verbosity when it came to handling errors and throwing on those. So we we pushed forward on that front at a certain point, uh, like I mentioned, we raised and then we brought on these contractors who, when we kind of told them about our ambitions on the AI front, said that. You know, it's probably good to have this mono language backend. Even though the AI is a separate service, it's just almost cognitively easier to have everything on the backend be Python. That, I think, is a decently good argument. I think it's a good starting point. I mean, if you have a strong reason to override that, then by all means, Um, If a different language is going to work better for an individual service, then don't, (laughs) you know, pick the same language just for the sake of uniformity. But I, at that point, had already been kind of seeing the faults in our Go uh, web API and in Cloud Datastore, um, especially with Cloud Datastore that was leading to some vendor lock-in that I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with. So we did a rewrite in the summer of 2017. So I think all in all, the the Go back end ended up lasting maybe six months, seven months, uh, and then transitioned that over to Flask. Maybe it was a year and a half. Honestly, at this point, it feels so long ago. Everything pre-COVID feels so long ago that it's it all kind of runs together. But I've definitely been happy with flask it's simple enough that it kind of does whatever we need it to do python as language is simple enough but it does kind of what we need it to i didn't have any python experience um, before doing that so in the, the sense of what you were talking about earlier with this this blank canvas fortunately with these contractors when they helped with this rewrite and with this migration i had a lot of code I guess translated from what I had been used to working with in Go over to Python which was a much easier starting point because I had these established patterns I could see kind of the equivalence in Python of what I had been doing in Go uh, and then took it from there at the time we were still executing kind of raw SQL queries we started using uh, since then after an incident where A lot of data got deleted. Unfortunately, it was recoverable, but never execute raw SQL queries unless you're very, very careful, kids.
0: Uh Uh-oh, are we talking like SQL injection happening over here?
1: No, it was, I mean, that would almost, in some sense, be better, because then it would be, it'd still be my mistake, but it'd be less my mistake. No, this was just a, um, this was just a delete statement that didn't have the right where on it. If anywhere, and uh, yeah, it was brutal. But it was it was early on before we really had customer data, so I have been. I mean, that's those kind of lessons that make you diligent because I have had a constant cold sweat for the past two years that something like that's going to happen. Um, moved to using an ORM, uh, PUE, which is makes it a little bit harder to do that. Uh, at least makes it a little bit more obvious when you do that, but then also got better with the database backup uh, practices and and all of that. But yeah, whenever I write a, a delete <laughs> uh, statement, I, I reread it twice, three times and four times over.
0: Right. So what made you choose that ORM um, over using something like SQL Alchemy?
1: Yeah, it just been... Um, Recommended by a friend that had been using it in production for a good amount of time. Uh, Somebody whose judgment I trust a lot. And when I looked at it compared to some of those other incumbent solutions like SQL Alchemy, it seemed clean, seemed simple. um, And it's been a joy to work with. At no point I felt constrained by it, like there was a lot that I couldn't do uh, with it. And uh, ultimately, it's just very readable, which is nice for kind of maintaining this code base in the long haul.
0: Nice. Yeah, it's all about the maintenance. So going back to your project, do you want to walk us through some libraries that you may have chosen that really helped you build this project, like something that might be in your requirements.txt file?
1: Right. Yeah, on the back end, it's relatively simple. It's, I mean, we just have a Postgres database and then kind of Python Flask, PUE, does most of the job we do have requirements around exporting to excel and exporting to pdf that there are a couple of libraries i've used there that have been good uh, i think it's OpenPyXL xl or something like that to export to uh, excel and then wheezy print to export to pdf um got to give a lot of credit to wheezy print because I've dealt with a number of kind of PDF rendering libraries since we're really in the business of PDFs dealt with a lot of them for parsing PDFs for generating PDFs and uh wheezy print really does was, does make that simple um, and handles a lot of the edge cases because PDFs, while they're kind of viewable on every platform, they, uh, when it comes to generation it, there's a million
0: and one edge cases.
1: Yeah. Everything on the, uh, backend's pretty simple.
0: Okay. So earlier, you, you know, you mentioned it was a good idea to switch over to Python because all the machine learning and AI stuff is in Python. Do you have all of that along with your Flask app in the same Git repo? Is it like a monorepo? No. So the API
1: server was originally, I mean, going as far back as the Go days, um, a lot of different repos, really for no reason. I mean, it was kind of broken up by model, which was dumb. I don't even know what I was doing there. API server is now all a monorepo, which has worked well. Then there are these separate services. Um, For example, we have to do a lot of PDF processing when it comes, when when we're given PDFs, when users upload documents. So that is something that used to be handled by a, uh, just like a process that was running on that same machine. Um, We were using a lot of like Redis, um, I think, to manage messages between these processes. But ultimately, I mean, especially when you combine this with a Kubernetes style deployment and you're treating these machines like cattle, I think is the phrase, right? There just ended up being a lot of cases where these processes were slow or when they were experiencing a lot of traffic, it was slowing down the web server, you know they kind of fail inexplicably and i'm sure that there, and i'm positive there there are ways to get it running in a performant way on the same machine without failing but when you have to wear a lot of different hats i kind of just wanted something that would be independent um, that would have that fault tolerance that durability So all of the AI stuff actually runs on App Engine. Um, App Engine Flexible, which effectively just kind of containerizes and then runs your application in that container versus App Engine Standard, which has a lot more of an opinionated environment as as far as what's kind of available to you library-wise. You don't get as many options with Standard to configure your deployment. Because we needed to install a lot of libraries like PyTorch, we ended up going um, the App Engine flexible route. I also looked at kind of GCP's built-in AI services. Uh, They're like AI Engine, I think is what they call it now. I think it's rebranded. But on the inference side of things, the Support just wasn't quite there yet for PyTorch. A lot of it is built assuming that you're using TensorFlow. And then I looked at something like, I think, Cloud Run, which allows you to run these containers um, more directly. It's a pretty close sibling of App Engine Flexible, but that wasn't a particularly good fit. wasn't able to get that working well. So ultimately, I mean, App Engine Flexible, it's... More expensive, definitely, than running this as its own kind of Kubernetes cluster. Um, And the reason we would do it as a Kubernetes cluster versus just like one Compute Engine instance is because we do need to scale these up and down. Uh, But really, App Engine flexible. We're willing to take kind of the hit on cost uh, in exchange for just... Kind of the peace of mind <laughs> that it it's it's kind of running on its own instance, it's easy to scale. Uh, haven't had any problems with that. And then on that one we use um, Google Cloud Tasks, which is kind of like PubSub, but it allows you to build up this queue and set a rate at which you think these tasks should be handled. Uh, I I think you can also just have that rate kind of be set automatically depending on how uh, responses are coming in. Because I have some idea of the performance and the expected time it takes for one of these App Engine um, flex instances to respond with the predictions because we're running um, multiple models on multiple instances. I can kind of set that rate, kind of rate limit, um, how these tasks are being handled and then get it back to the API server to populate the database and then pass on to the user. Uh, The front end has been polling this whole time and it's been, I mean, it's been a good experience. I've uh, been really happy with how App Engine has evolved over the years because The Go API server was running on App Engine back in the day, but the capabilities weren't kind of really what they are today in in terms of support, in terms of this kind of flexibility.
0: Right. So we have a lot of good stuff to unwind from that. But way earlier on, you mentioned uh, API. So safe to say that your Flask app is serving an API. If so, which libraries do you use? Or do you just use Flask straight up?
1: Yeah, just use Flask straight up. One of the requirements for our stack is that the API is externally accessible because something that's happened in commercial real estate in the last five to 10 years is they've all, it seems like they've all got these tech teams, many of whom have built either some sort of internal data warehouse or otherwise build these sort of integrations, these connectors between uh, their stack so they need to be able to use our api to be able to pull data and put it into their data warehouse and sync it or vice versa it seems like i have i'm crossing my fingers that in a few years we'll be able to replace any sort of data warehousing or some of the other apps that they're trying to sync with and then not expose the api because that does just introduce again more complexity You have to document it. Uh, You have to make sure that if there are breaking changes to that interface, that you communicate that back to these users, and most importantly, the security front. But yeah, it's just a Flask
0: API. Right. And I I took a look at, uh, on your landing page, on the homepage, you had some videos there and it looked like you had a really nice web dashboard. Is that dashboard built out using your own API, but then some type of like React or Vue on the front end?
1: Yeah, the front end is an entirely React Redux web app, a relatively thin layer that just kind of handles fetching the data, doing the transformations, and then obviously passing it back. Um, When we first started, I mean, there was a big debate between whether Flow or TypeScript was going to end up being the kind of go-to typing framework, I guess you could call it, for... React um, and for JavaScript more broadly. I made that early bet on Flow. It seems like I made the wrong bet there um, because Flow was developed by Facebook. And since, you know, Facebook had support for uh, React and Redux, that it seemed natural that they'd win on this front too. Who knew Microsoft would win with TypeScript? Uh, There are also kind of two different levels of, um, I guess, how strict they are, how tightly enforced or how tightly they enforce these these types. Um, so we did have flow on that for a while. I've since ripped that out and hope to use TypeScript at some point because I do strongly believe in like strongly typed languages. But yeah, it's, a, it's just a React app, Redux, uh, React router. We used to use a, a library for tables, but at a certain point when more and more of that functionality that you would typically handle with a table library like sorting once you pass that back to the database because um, at the point at which you need pagination which for us is pretty quick because our you know our users are dealing with thousands of entities you we passed more and more of that functionality back to the API to handle the sorting to handle the filtering um, to the point where we were like this, table libraries not doing anything for us and, and ripped it out. And that so that's just kind of a regular old HTML table styled to look nice and then um, kind of communicate any changes in filtering and styling or in, in sorting uh, back to the API.
0: Right. It's actually funny. Like the idea of showing data in a table as such like an old pattern yet still nowadays today, It's not the easiest thing in the world to wire up like a really, really nice data table solution. You know, like autocomplete search and pagination and like bulk actions and filtering and multi-column sorting and like all the state saved in the URL and like not reloading the whole page in every view. Like did you find that it was still like I don't know, maybe fun in a way to develop that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it kind of came in incrementally because at first all we needed to do was just show the rows. And then the sorting is relatively easy to have some sort of table library handle before you have pagination because it has all of the data there. So you just sort it on the front end. But then kind of over time, we added really complex uh, filtering capabilities because people need to see, you know, what are my expiration dates happening in the next month for properties that are below 6,000 square feet. I don't know. That's too few square feet. Um, so the more that we kind of added this and the more we were taking out of the library, really the biggest impetus for kind of forcing that realization was every now and again, I'll, I'll kind of go through and update all the front end libraries that I can. It's always a frustrating experience. And I get where this broader sense of JavaScript fatigue kind of comes from. Because it seems like a lot of the changes happen for no good reason. And they require extensive overhauls on your entire front end. So a lot of times it's just easier not to do it. Uh, For example, our React router version is still v3. Uh, v4 ended up being a huge overhaul. v5 incremental. And then v6 was another huge overhaul. So we're just kind of jumping straight from V3 to V6 once it makes its way out of beta and kind of skipped the other overhauls in between. But it, I, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of great reasons for changes other than, I don't know, the sake of, of changing. Um, so the library that we were using on the front end was one of the ones that I looked at and was like, okay, we should just probably go ahead and upgrade this. Um, it's not going to break any of these other dependencies if I kind of upgrade this one in isolation and it moved to the new hooks pattern in React, um, which is actually one of the changes that I think has been really nice and that I was skeptical of at first. When I was doing that, I mean, that requires a major rewrite. And then when I saw all the stuff that we didn't need, I was like, what do we need? (laughs) Um, So just ended up kind of uh, ripping that out. I mean, yeah, the, the table, building the table stuff has been fun because especially when I sit in on a demo with Max, it's really great to see kind of the customer's reaction to being able to click from a data point that occurs in a table and have that take you straight into the document, to the right page, to the right location where that data point occurs. Um, and that they also kind of get this filtering capability, the sorting capability, and then also just like... You know, what columns do you want to show? What are the widths of the columns? Kind of basic stuff like that. But it allows them to put together this kind of perfect report and then save that so they can easily access that table configuration later um, for these commonly viewed uh, set of filters. If, if they need like a and columns, if they need a rent roll view, they can do that yeah i mean it's really gratifying especially then you know now they can export it to excel and to pdf and they can kind of use this as their ultimately what we're building is a source of truth platform um, where kind of the documents the data that stems from the documents um, soon kind of the conversation that surrounds that as we kind of add these abilities this ability to add comments all lives in the same place and that you can connect that to their other applications in their um, their stack so that everything stays in sync, everything is traceable, auditable, um, and that all kind of is embodied in some sense in this table view um, because in a world where that that is the case, that this is their single source of truth. I mean, you're kind of looking at the core nugget of this business, many of these businesses being worth you know, millions of dollars. And it really comes down to
0: that data. Right. Now, speaking of millions of dollars, potentially, I noticed on your site too, that, you know, this is not a free service beyond the free trial or the free plan. Uh, which payment provider do you use to to take in payments? Yeah, we actually
1: do that custom right now um, before we launched the product publicly, which has been about a year ago at this point, because we started onboarding customers Uh, probably about six months, these pilot customers about six months before we publicly launched. One of the last big tasks before we publicly launched was doing some sort of like Stripe integration. But then the more Max and I talked about it, we were like, are people even going to pay with credit card? Like who at this commercial real estate company is going to be whipping out their company Amex or whatever? That's just not how they operate. Uh, and it's definitely not how they pay for services like this. Yeah, right now, I mean, we uh, just kind of send these invoices. Uh, we get oftentimes ACH or maybe a check or kind of whatever. It's not a super scalable process. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully they kind of move their payment habits to a world where we can kind of automate that whole process. Um, but yeah, for now we're just kind of doing it the old fashioned way.
0: Right. I like that though. Right. It's like, wait until it's a problem to try to automate it. Because if if you're only dealing with, you know, not a million requests per week or whatever, it's not too bad just to go in there by hand and, and accept a couple of checks or ECHs. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a good, not only a good, but a necessary philosophy to have when you're starting a company and especially when you're a solo engineer. Um, but it also kind of applies to both Max and I, kind of all of our processes, which is, and it's an oft-quoted maxim, right? Premature optimization is the root of all evil. Uh, I've seen companies fail because they their V1 was something that could handle millions of requests a day. I was like, look, if you have that problem, that's a good problem to have and you can hire people to help you migrate um, to the more complex uh, version of that. I mean, I, I've been learning recently a lot about Elixir and Phoenix just for personal curiosity. And you know, those machines can handle, uh, they've seen cases where a single machine can handle, you know, a couple million requests almost simultaneously, right off the bat. Uh, which is great. And fortunately with I mean Elixir and Phoenix, that doesn't require, any additional configuration, but, you know, kind of forces this introspection and with Flask and, um, really most languages, most, um, especially most like kind of API libraries or frameworks, concurrency is a sort of second class citizen. And it's pretty complex to get that set up and make sure it's working right. And then. You know with flask it pretty directly scales with kind of the number of cores you have um or just broadly the number of threads that you're able to start so it's this pretty linear relationship where to be able to handle more traffic you have to scale up to these really really beefy machines so there have been times where i've had that thought where i'm like oh well maybe we should be able to handle more requests concurrently and do but then you have to just stop and be like that's not a problem yet and we'll kind of handle it when it is. Um, There have been a number of things that I've already kind of had to touch twice and, and kind of rebuild because I built it on this assumption that this solution, whatever it was, would get us a bit farther than it did. But you kind of always learn something on that road that helps you when you do build the scalable repeatable process, you can do it in the best way possible.
0: Right. So on a related note to that one, though, what made you end up choosing going all in basically with Google Cloud for the first iteration of your deployment? Because you mentioned using like Google App Engine, and I'm pretty sure Kubernetes for the Flask API is what you said before. Maybe I'm wrong on that one, but that seems to be a pretty like super scalable solution. But also you're kind of at not ground zero, right? Like I don't know how many clients you have, but not at like mega, mega, mega scale. Right. Yeah, I kind of
1: ended up backing into GCP by virtue of starting with Firebase. I mean, I had been a fan of Firebase and a user of Firebase for uh, years before they got acquired by Google. I think by the time we had started Abstract, though, they had already been acquired by Google. Um, so that was kind of naturally what I gravitated towards when we were building this proof of concept app. And then when we needed to access other services or different capabilities, uh, it was a pretty natural jump to just hop over to GCP. I've been very mindful about avoiding vendor lock-in, even though we do use a number of these sort of proprietary services, I guess, that don't have super direct mappings in something like AWS. You know, a lot of our services run on cloud functions too, which I think is something worth mentioning Um, to anybody out there that needs something that uh, can uh, scale relatively well and is easy to get um, spun up. Like I mentioned earlier, I mean, we used to do document processing kind of on Redis um, and on those same machines. But there was a day where I was driving and I was listening to like a GCP podcast and somebody specifically was talking about how you can do document processing with cloud functions um, because those machines come with image magic built in, which is a must have for doing any sort of PDF processing. And I mean, I almost crashed my car at that point because I had been thinking about like it was just such an annoying aspect of the stack and something I was constantly having to mend. And Cloud Functions, I mean, are effectively free unless you have a lot of scale. But when we're doing things like, you know, running OCR on these documents and then kind of processing the pages that makes it easier to view on the app, Um, something like Cloud Functions will will make it easier to kind of handle each page uh, independently. Now, if we ever needed to leave GCP, mapping there is AWS Lambda, I would probably have to tweak some things about what name of the function it expects and you know what parameters and what kind of data you get from those parameters. But it should be pretty seamless. Um, kind of the same with, I mean, obviously having kind of the Docker and Kubernetes containers um, makes it pretty platform agnostic. Uh, even... On the AI side of things, I, I'm think, pretty sure you have to write a Docker file, if I remember correctly, to run on, um, or at least you have the option to, to run on App Engine Flexible. So that is something that I could kind of spin up elsewhere. Uh, the the database, though, is running in um, Cloud SQL, which does provide a lot of like good security defaults um, and also kind of uh, making sure you know backups are, are done regularly and that it, uh, if you need to locate your database in, in kind of different regions that you can do that. Um, that one would be a little bit of a pain to migrate, but also very doable.
0: Well, I think that's pretty fair, right? Like data, data migration is always the hardest part, practically, I don't, don't want to say impossible, but yeah, if, once you're like, Once your teeth are sunk into some service for a couple of years, yeah, getting away from the data is very hard. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, I've been pretty satisfied with GCP. They have a good GCP for Startups program. Um, I I think that's still active. I don't know the current details, but especially because Google just has so much money and they're they're trying to win uh, people over from AWS. So by doing that, you can get a good number of uh, free credits. So we were able to operate on that for a good amount of time and save a good amount of money. The little bit of experience I do have using AWS, um, the interface is uh, can be confusing, it is not the prettiest thing in the world. Not to say that Google's is great, not a fan of material design. And in some sense, this is just because You know, AWS is different from what I'm used to and uses a different maybe vocabulary than Google does for certain things. It's kind of a trade-off, but I think it's important to avoid getting too locked in where possible. Our experience with GCP also hasn't been flawless. I mean, there was a time where there was a bug on their end in their, I think it was the DNS, like the internal DNS, so that you know, probably 80% of the requests that came in were getting 404s, I think it was. Um, It was some 400 error code that would indicate that it was a problem on our end. And it was frustratingly like could not reproduce it. So I spent so much time pulling out my hair because I mean, everything was effectively down. And our customers, obviously, that's terrible because then they're just not able to do their jobs. Um, They they essentially are frozen for a couple of days. So, you know, I was racking my brain trying to think of any possible thing that could happen. Fortunately, I hadn't pushed any new code in a couple of weeks. So, you know, that was a relatively good signal that it wasn't on my end. Finally got a hold of somebody at GCP. They kind of denied that it was their problem. Uh, Pressed on it a little bit more. They acknowledged it was our problem or that it was their problem. Didn't get a response for like hours finally you know I was just sending them email after email being like please help me I'm we're dying here Uh, finally get a response it gets escalated then once they finally got texts on it their emails would always end with like okay we'll guarantee you a response within two hours or within I think one hour so that night I had to wake up every hour to check these emails And they still kept trying to blame us in the end. It was on (laughs) their end and it caused like two or three days of downtime. Um, It definitely makes me concerned for, you know, whenever you need GCP support, if they're going to be there. Um, And then kind of the remediation on that was not great. Um, I think we got comped for like... That one or two days of downtime, but uh, in no way for the kind of immeasurable aspect of this, this downtime. But, you know, AWS is not without its downtime either. Uh, I know that it was like their US East One zone that people uh, have notorious problems with. It happens. I mean, downtime happens. they're engineers just like we are, and so I get that aspect of it. but the thing that's really inexcusable is kind of the unresponsiveness, the um kind of the passing of of blame um when and the fact that I kept having to repeat myself for some of these troubleshooting issues so Don't say any of that to scare people away from using GCP because I have had a good experience with the the platform and AWS support for all I know could be equally as bad. At least with that experience I've made uh, definitely has kind of strengthened my resolve to make sure that we're platform agnostic.
0: Right. Yeah. Isn't it funny how it works like that when it comes to uh, like getting comped for the downtime, e- even though like your whole business was basically dead for a couple of days. It would be like going to like a restaurant, like getting food poisoning, almost dying, ending, ending up in a hospital with like a like a $250,000 hospital bill. And then the restaurant is like, oh, by the way, you know, here's like a $50 gift card so you and your family can enjoy a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a perfect analogy. And it's not only even that. It's like,
1: I would have take it a $50 gift card in that scenario. I mean, like that's like they comp the price of your meal because the way they did it, they were just like, okay, well, you know, you first reported this error at, you know, noon on this one day and it was resolved at uh, 4 a.m., you know, like two days later. So that number of hours, like what's your average spend over the past month per day? And then, you know, divide that by 24 to get your average hourly spend and then. Um, multiply it so that they you know get as close as possible to the what you were gonna pay for that period of time that you were down. <laughs> you have to get that specific. can't even just give me like you know what my spend would have been for a week
0: as a treat for my trouble <laughs> that is like brutally calculated, yeah now I mean speaking about like vendor lock and things like that, like what does your dev experience look like? so I don't have any real experience using like cloud functions on on Google's platform, but I have used AWS Lambda a bit. And in development, it's kind of tricky sometimes when you depend on all of these external cloud services, but you don't want to like mock them, but you still want to test them, but it requires like all the shenanigans of having like test accounts on the cloud provider. Like what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel where you're coming from. Um, Typically when it comes to anything on the cloud functions front, I'll just have, I'll, I'll kind of start a new Python environment a virtual environment, and then just kind of have this pretty bare bones Python script and get it working there so that any problem that happens in the Cloud Function has to do with the deployment. It has to do with like it not being able to find some library or, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, really just generally with Cloud Functions, I try to make them as small as possible uh, because they also have, you know, pretty strict Timeouts. Um, you just broadly don't want to use them for like these really long running processes or something that requires like really heavy compute. So, by virtue of that, you know, it kind of ends up being that the tasks that they handle are also pretty small, quick running, pretty granular. Um, so, then once those get deployed, I don't often Make changes to those. Um, fortunately, I mean, with Google Cloud stuff, it, it you can sync it with your repositories. So, like, all of the cloud functions are in their own repository, pushed to GitHub. You can kind of you can connect that to it's called like Google Cloud repository or something like that, and then um, connect that to Cloud Functions. So that all I have to do is kind of just point towards this repo and towards this file and make sure that the function name is correct that it's looking for. And then it kind of pulls in that code. So then whenever I need to make a change, all I have to do is edit the code locally, push it to GitHub, and then go in and redeploy this function. I'm pretty sure there's a way that you can have that Function automatically update should anything change in GitHub uh, through cloud build, but it's not worth it because those functions don't change often enough. Um, I mean, that we that is how that works with our main API server, though. Everything goes through cloud build based on these changes to our GitHub. So any push to master updates our staging environment, our staging app. And then anytime I cut a new version on GitHub, it updates... Production automatically.
0: Okay, so you've gone full CI, CD. You have a whole test suite running up there as well?
1: Yeah, that runs in GitHub. Um, It it runs in um, Jenkins, the test do. So GitHub is set up to automatically run that in Jenkins every time a pull request is opened and I think updated. Um, So, and then I make sure, even though it is just me. Um, to almost always work in these branches so that when I push a branch to GitHub, you know, kind of open this pull request, it runs Jenkins, make sure everything looks good. I've been meaning to look more into GitHub actions, which look really cool because I'm sure they have some CICD capability there that you might even be able to replace Jenkins. Um, but then if everything's good, you know, merge in that branch. Now it's in master, goes up to staging, um, Max and I kind of test it out manually. Just do a little bit of a sanity check, especially because the front end—I don't—I haven't written any tests for. I'm like very, very strict about testing on the back end. I mean, our back end is 19 lines of code by 24 line or 24,000. Sorry, 19,000 lines of code, 24,000 lines of tests. So very strict about uh, doing those kind of integration tests on the API server. And those numbers are all excluding kind of all these external services. That's just the API server. Um, The front end, it's 28,000 lines of of JavaScript. (laughs) None of which are tested. I have mixed opinions on kind of this front end unit testing because I think a lot of times, at least in the examples I've seen, they mock it up in such a way And stub certain things out in a way that it's not doing a great job of actually testing whatever it is it's supposed to be testing. Uh, You know, it's making sure you're asserting against things like, you know, this element rendered or the text says this. There are so many things that you're searching for on the front end, especially when it comes to styling, you can't really write tests for. At the very least, you might be able to capture some of these runtime exceptions. But most of those, when they do occur, stem from something on the back end. So I can usually cover that with some sort of integration test for the API server. And then we just kind of manually test the front end. If everything looks good, then you know, we cut a version on GitHub um, and then push, which updates the API production server, uh, and then push a new version of the front end. And we're off to the races.
0: So overall, like would how how long would you say on average a deploy takes? Like from pull request to being up in production?
1: Yeah, I mean, as soon as I merge in that pull request, it starts the process in Cloud Build effectively automatically. It might be a 1 or 2 second delay. And then the build itself takes a little bit less than 4 minutes. It has to pull in some external packages, kind of handle bringing in some of these secrets and then building kind of and containerizing the actual API server. Um, Once that build is done, it has to update the individual nodes in Kubernetes or the individual um, clusters, I should say. So, I mean, that only takes typically like 30 seconds or a minute. So all in all, less than five minutes. And then the front end builds take somewhere between like 30 seconds and a minute. And then pushing to Firebase is pretty automatic. I could streamline that too to have a similar flow, where it's all kind of based off GitHub. But it's just something I've been kind of pushing off. It's not enough of a pain, and uh, we kind of like to have that flexibility in terms of being able to push the front end because there there's a little bit of downtime on the back end. There's when it's updating these these Kubernetes um, clusters. And I'm sure that's also something that's avoidable, but when you got to wear a lot of hats, you know, I've learned like Kubernetes deployment stuff and Docker stuff so many times, but then it's just six months or a year in between using it and you just sort of forget <laughs> and have to relearn, especially because the APIs will change in between. So I'm sure there's an easy way to have the deployment Um Update in Kubernetes without having any downtime, at least for ours. It does. It's minuscule, but I typically try to do it at, at like night or on the weekends. Um, whereas with the front end, we can kind of just push that in the middle of a workday. So I do like having a little bit more flexibility there, not being as tied to this workflow.
0: Okay. So when it comes to the downtime on the back end per deploy, is that just a couple of seconds? Well, the uh, container spins up, I guess.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's pretty inconsistent because it, it depends on which container the traffic ends up being routed to, um, which instance. And so that's probably just something I can configure better in my load balancer um, to mark these nodes that are being updated with a new version as not available. Don't send me requests. Yeah, it's kind of just luck or maybe unluck of the draw. If you know a users actively using the app, that one of their requests gets sent to that uh, node that's that's updating. But yeah, it's typically probably fewer than thirty seconds, and
0: it's definitely also not every request in that time period. Right. So one thing that I always find interesting, and it's always nice to hear how others solve this problem. So when you have your back end and front end split up like that, where they're both independently deployed. How do you deal with the scenarios where you might be deploying your back end, back end is now available, the new version, but you haven't quite pushed your front end yet? Like, how do you keep them in sync so that you're not dealing with code that, you know, it might be expecting a new version that's not quite deployed yet on either side? Yeah, I mean, that's a great
1: question. fortunately, our customer traffic is pretty predictable. Most of our customers are on the East Coast and they work relatively normal work hours. They do outsource some work to India or other parts of kind of that world. But, and so when that happens, sometimes we'll see traffic um, in the middle of the night, but typically there's pretty sizable windows where we're kind of free to do whatever. And with apps like Intercom or uh, LogRocket, we're able to see how active users have been when they were last active, most importantly. So we just kind of make sure that nobody's on. It's typically no more than, you know, a minute or two. And rarely is it something that's breaking if one gets there before the other. Because, you know, if we're adding a new feature, for example, on the back end, maybe that's a new endpoint. And on the front end, that's there's a button or a modal that's associated with that. So if the back end gets there first. It doesn't matter because there's nothing to hit that endpoint. Now, if the front end gets there first, maybe they'll try to use it and there will be no endpoint to hit yet. But typically, I try to, it just kind of depends on whatever the feature is. And if it is super important that they get there at the same time, or if it's a situation where it's fine if one gets there before
0: the other. Right. So it sounds like in most cases, you can deploy the back end first, just to be more safe. So that at least the front end won't have like a dead back end uh, endpoints. Exactly. Now earlier during the CI process or just deployment process in general, you, you know, you mentioned the word secret, but we didn't get into that one. Uh, how do you deal with secrets with all this? Hopefully, not committing uh, your secrets straight to GitHub. <laughs> yeah, so I put them in a .txt file
1: and I, you know, push them to GitHub and now it, it put them on the company's page. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I uh, email them to all our customers. They So there's a, there's a good service, um, Google KMS, I think it's like key management service. I think that one has also been rebranded. It's kind of been shuffled around in the sidebar. You can use that to encrypt and decrypt uh, certain, especially when it comes to something like, well, here's a good example. So for some of these services to kind of do a, a really lazy authentication, what I'll do is have this random string that is committed to the um, database in kind of the plain text version, have that be encrypted by one service and decrypted by the other because the check there isn't the actual payload. It's whether these services have Encrypt, decrypt access to that cryptographic key, which is something that you can set in um you know the school uh, service and that you know only I kind of have access to. And then you can also set it to that like the, the sending service only has encrypt and the receiving service is the only one that has decrypt. And there's also no way to view these keys. Like GCP keeps that totally obfuscated. Um, so there's no way for that to leak. So I'll do that for things that are that are more dynamic, like that, that are kind of on a per request basis. But for these kind of broader secrets, I'm sure there are better ways to handle this. Um, but it is they're they're kind of decrypted as part of this um, cloud build process and made available for the uh, kind of local machine to use. There are things that aren't super secret, <laughs> uh, things like, you know, API keys to like a mailer, where if it got leaked, you know, we might incur some charges or, or something, but we'd re- realize relatively quick and, and it's relatively easy to fix.
0: By the way, uh, just to interrupt there real quick, sorry. Uh, when it comes to email, which service do you use? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we
1: have used, it feels like, everything at this point. I started with MailJet and then at a certain point moved to mailgun which shortly thereafter acquired mailjet almost negating the uh, the need for that move at all these days you know we we don't have remotely close to even a fraction of the volume we need to have a sh- or to have a dedicated api sorry dedicated ip so we're still on the shared ip all the email we're sending is mostly transactional like a
0: forgot password email
1: yeah, forgot password emails, um, that kind of thing, or just like a notification when a user added you to their team. But being on these shared IPs can't do anything about what the other people on this IP are, are doing and how spammy they are. It feels like, especially lately, we've been on these IPs with folks that I guess are pretty spammy. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably the most common customer support and customer success inquiry that I have to deal with is somebody that just never received their, you know, they signed up, but they didn't receive their activation email. Um, They received their, forgot their password email. And for that reason, I mean, I've essentially been on call for three years. Well, I guess we didn't really have people actively using it until about a year and a half ago. But, you know, I always have to have my phone on me because when somebody signs up, or if somebody wants to log back in, but they don't remember their password, it's hard enough to get people to use your product or service. And it's especially bad if somebody has some amount of enthusiasm for it, but then they can't get in. <laughs> they can't access. Um, so you want to really minimize that uh, that waiting period because every kind of second that goes by, their enthusiasm might diminish or uh, even worse. I mean, they, they might have some job function that they're expected to do. So I've been looking lately at, oh, what's it called? Postmark? Is that the? Yeah. 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 Postmark seems to be one that a lot of people are gravitating towards. I mean, I've heard similar problems from folks using SendGrid, but Postmark ostensibly seems to be, at least according to their marketing, (laughs) fast and like reliable. And um, hopefully you're not going to get blocked by some of these like corporate uh, spam filters. So I'm using Mailgun, not super satisfied. I, the templating capability is pretty good. The um, kind of the logging and analytics is all good. Really the only complaint I have on the Mailgun front is just kind of the nature, I guess, of being on a shared IP. So I'm not sure how Postmark gets around that, but I also have to give a shout out to um, MailChimp. And, Need to look. Are, do you know if they're still running Mandrill, which uh, is their transactional email service, right?
0: I do not recall. I know Mandrill was separate for a long time, but I think they may have deprecated that entirely, but don't quote me on that one. Got it. Got it. Yeah. As a, uh,
1: somebody that originated from the Atlanta startup scene, I always have to kind of give <laughs> preference to Atlanta companies, especially because MailChimp was the only one for uh, a while that kind of folks knew.
0: Yeah, for campaigns and stuff like that, it was always just like MailChimp or nothing for a long time. And then a whole bunch of other ones popped up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they, they've done great things for the Atlanta tech scene, um, which is something that, you know, when I first started as an engineer, and I was, I think, 16 when I got my first internship in at, at Atlanta. It was just really was like an exciting environment because it felt like everybody was working on things that they found kind of important and problems that they thought were worth solving. And especially with companies like MailChimp that right around this time had kind of started to really break out and go on this big trajectory that you would typically only see on the West Coast. It felt kind of like a uh, like a gold rush, kind of like... You know, you realize now this is possible for somebody coming from Atlanta. And it was just so kind of cooperative and supportive. Uh, And then when I came to Stanford, yeah, I was just it immediately destroyed any ambition I had to start a company because it feels like I'm now in L.A., but just kind of out in California more broadly. Everybody that's starting a company is doing it for some pursuit of like tech fame. (laughs) Um, that they want to be a household you know, Zuck or Dorsey and uh, yeah I immediately kind of got rid of the idea of starting my own company and it wasn't until I met Max that I kind of realized that this was something that uh, I'd kind of always hoped I'd come across and um, but yeah I mean it's been great to see some of the the companies that have come out of Atlanta recently. Um, Sales Loft I mean Calendly has been an outstanding success so i think uh i mean calendly is an essential part of our sales stack there uh it's how max books all of his demos um, and then as soon as we get into marketing we'll probably use some mailchimp stuff you know focus more on sales we'll probably use sales loft so got to shout out the uh the atlanta tech companies right
0: yeah atlanta all the way <laughs> switching gears a bit here though you know, earlier you mentioned how that rogue delete there without aware ended up causing all sorts of trouble. What have you done to plan for disasters or unexpected events? Like, do you do database backups or do you backup any of the user uploaded files?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We, It's a tough balance to, to maintain between that feeling of security um, on our end. And not just even the feeling, um, but I guess actually kind of Having everything be recoverable while balancing that with cost and with privacy. Uh, Because you could set it to not delete anything, but then, you know, if you ever want to do international business, good luck uh, with GDPR. And and even putting that aside, um, you know, kind of the privacy concerns there, just on a moral level, for getting legal. Uh, I mean, I guess that's something that you have to decide for yourself, but...
0: Um, Wait, do you mean like doing like a soft delete where you just mark them as deleted, but they're still there? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: a valid thing to do, but you're just kind of opening yourself up for if there is a data breach later on that you're... And, you know, somebody that maybe churned as a customer a couple of years before and thought they deleted everything are now being notified that all of that data <laughs> was leaked. Um. You're kind of opening yourself up to a lot of trouble there. And then on the cost front, I mean, you can do database backups every 15 minutes, I guess, if you ignore performance, but that'll start to um, add up. And then, I mean, just also in the general, the kind of speed that you can move at if kind of every step you're wondering um, or you're kind of preparing for every downside for everything that can happen. It's something that we've had to think through just kind of as a result of being um, going through some of these procurement processes at large companies. And I want to see kind of these disaster mitigation plans and recovery plans. It all does feel a little bit silly having that in a document because I know like if shit hits the fan, the first thing I'm not going to be doing is hunting through our Google Drive and finding this document. Maybe I should have it printed out and... Taped to my monitor so it's more easily accessible. But yeah, I mean I think we're doing like very reasonable uh mitigation here. Things are backed up. Um we try to avoid deleting things whenever possible, but you know, if a user deletes something, they delete something. And while I'm sure they would appreciate the capability of having it be a soft delete that they can reverse in case it's an accident, you know, that's at the end of the day, kind of something that's on them. Now, if it's on us, then we're, we're kind of screwed. And I do have like nightmares of having to call Max and tell him that like, we have to close up shop because everything got deleted and it's not recoverable. So there's definitely a lot more we can do, but you know, it's something that you kind of always push to another day. You're like, okay, well in a couple of months we'll, we'll handle that. And, it always just keeps getting pushed back and back um, at the very least the source PDFs we try not to delete whenever possible because then you can recover I guess a lot of uh, for example like I could wipe uh, I could wipe our elasticsearch server and get everything back by I mean one just kind of these... OCR files that we have stored from whenever the document's processed. Um, But even if those were gone, you can always kind of start with that PDF, maybe re-OCR them, reprocess them, kind of re-index all of that text. So I feel like we're covered on that front. And then um, also making sure that, and this'll be something that when we have more employees, there are kind of more steps that you have to take to make sure that folks shouldn't have delete access to things that they shouldn't have delete access to. But they, uh, so that, I mean, even putting aside their mistakes, that if their credentials get leaked, that somebody can't do damage with that. Um, But yeah, on the database front, making sure that there's like a strong delete protection there
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, for the database as a whole. And then it backs up, Uh, definitely a lot more regularly.
0: (laughs) Right, is that like once a day or once a week or even more often?
1: I think right now it's once a day. Um, I'll probably bump that up at some point. (laughs) There's only been fortunately one time that I've had to restore from a backup and it wasn't the entire database. Um, In Cloud SQL, you have the option to set up a a new database with the backup of an old one. Uh, and I needed that just to kind of fetch some uh, small slice of customer data that they wanted recovered. Okay. But fingers crossed that <laughs> you know our, our worst disaster days are behind us.
0: Right. So far so good, but there's still some time left in 2020. Although by the time this airs, uh, it might be 2021.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, hopefully 2021's better. If you're if you're listening from the future.
0: Yes. So on the topic, though, of like disasters and unexpected events, uh, do you have any alerting or monitoring in place where you'll get notified if, I don't know, the cluster is running low on resources and you need to scale it up or anything like that, where maybe the public website isn't returning a 200 anymore?
1: Yes. So on the back end, most of our error reporting comes through GCP. Uh, Their error reporting has, I, I haven't found fault with it yet. It aggregates errors across You know, everything that's running in our uh, Kubernetes clusters to everything, the machine learning models that are running in App Engine to the services running in cloud functions. I get an email whenever a new error arises. So there's probably more I should do on that end for kind of monitoring to make sure that if we're exceeding kind of, if we're above a certain threshold of CPU usage or memory usage uh, so far, that hasn't been a problem because, well, we'll see if it ever becomes a problem. So far, it hasn't been a problem. Uh, On the front end, we use LogRocket to be able to kind of provide this customer success. Um, And then it also kind of handles these errors that are thrown and kind of points you to the point in a user's session where that happens. So we can do our best to recreate that, kind of showing their redux state uh, prior to that occurring, kind of if it was a request that failed, what that request was. It feels like our our error handling is is well covered right now. Um, monitoring, on the other hand, you know, could use some work on. And then for the landing page, yeah, I mean, there's there's currently nothing that tells us it, tells us if it's not returning a 200. If it's not, I guess that's a Netlify or not Netlify. We were using Netlify for for the landing page. We're currently using Webflow, um, but I guess that's a Webflow problem. And we don't really touch the landing page often enough for it to break.
0: So when you say landing page, is that just the home page, or is it basically the static pages controlling the front end, like basically the non-app component of it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's everything when you go to abstractcre.com, not
0: app.abstractcre.com. Right, okay. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Webflow. Do you want to just give us the TLDR on that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of shied away from these no-code solutions, um, especially because, you know, I've seen a lot of Wix, Weebly, WordPress websites in my day that just looked awful and they look like they came from a template. It's kind of like when somebody uses Bootstrap and then doesn't change any of the default styling. But so, uh, so we had an iteration of our landing page that was kind of like a coming soon that was built on a um, landing page uh, software, or it was a no-code solution um, built by one of our friends that's no longer available. Um, For kind of the first real landing page we ever had, I built that custom using Gatsby, which is a React library that's good for building these sort of static sites. In the end, because I don't use Gatsby, for a lot of my other workflow. It's kind of the same thing with Kubernetes, that like you learn it and then you deploy it and it's just kind of running on its own. And then when you need to come back six months later or a year later and make some change, you have to re-familiarize yourself. I ended up at the point where, you know, we weren't even touching the landing page that often, um, updating it with kind of these new features that we were building because it just was kind of a pain in the ass. And then uh, I was also worried that I wasn't doing the best I could on the SEO front. Um, Webflow is, as far as I've seen, the best no-code uh, site builder, I guess is the best way you can frame that up. I'm sure their, uh, their CEO has a better elevator pitch than that. But it I was actually surprised by how complex it is because they have a really simple landing page and you know, all the screenshots look pretty simple, but it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a powerful tool and uh, it's got a lot in it and there's a learning curve to that, uh, which has been really helped by having some knowledge of CSS because there are elements to this builder that are just effectively on top of CSS. Um, they're kind of passing these values on down. But what it's allowed us to do is one, kind of rest easier on the SEO front because they present to you all these fields that you need to fill out for, you know, site metadata and all that to make sure that it's indexed properly. And then, um, yeah, it makes it easy to go back and do these kind of quick changes in terms of, you know, if we want to change the copy, Uh, we're not doing any AB testing right now, but in the future, if we do, they make that easy. Ultimately kind of whatever materials we have that are public facing aren't the most important because we are B2B and most of our sales come from either outbound um, contact from Max or from word of mouth. There's a sort of uh, network effect that happens with the app where you can invite these external collaborators, or maybe during a transaction, um, they kind of hand the data over to the new owner. Um, so we've got exposure that way. So it's always been kind of this question about how much time and effort should we invest into what's public facing? Uh, with Webflow, fortunately, now that we've kind of gotten over this hurdle of getting the initial page set up, we can kind of spend minimal time on that because I do think it's it's useful to have this because a lot of the selling that occurs is within an individual organization. Once you once Max has a demo, with somebody at, you know, let's say Huli, if they, maybe they're a huge fan of it, they become a champion of abstract CRE internally. Um, But then they kind of have to pitch it to their coworkers and to their superiors. And ultimately it gets to the person with the buying power. And having these materials present helps grease those wheels a bit. It also just kind of, I guess, makes us look like more of a legit company in the eyes of uh, investors and honestly kind of in our own eyes. Sometimes I'll just go to the landing page and be like, hey, we are a legit company. And like, you know, similar to kind of seeing people use this for their day-to-day work, it um, for so long kind of felt like this side project in some sense. It's kind of funny that it, it's probably similar to how, you know, uh, 80-year-old, might have a child that's, uh, 60, but in their eyes that, you know, that person's still the the five-year-old right. they once were, they're still a child. Um, so I kind of have to, you know, it's nice to have that landing page up there to remind us that
0: it's a legit operation. Nice. Yeah. I know, I know exactly what you mean on that one. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? There are a lot of them.
1: Um, I would say one, they is no good advice. (laughs) There's a big asterisk to that because there is good advice. But I think when people start companies and they start endeavors like this, you know, there's so much general startup knowledge out there that it's easy to have this feeling that there are right answers and that you just have to find them. You have to sift through and you'll find the golden key and then you'll be a billion dollar company. And it's easy to spend a lot of time doing that. But ultimately, I mean, a lot of the advice that's out there probably won't be applicable to you because, you know, if I were to give advice to somebody, that all stems from my experience and my customers and kind of our journey. And that's all totally different from what somebody else might be experiencing. It reminds me of um, when Bo Burnham was on, I think Jimmy Fallon He's on the the tonight show. And he said like, I have gotten extremely lucky and like my path is unique. And like for me to say, Oh, follow your dreams. Like do whatever you want to. would be like a Powerball winner saying liquidate your assets, you know, buy lottery tickets. So you can't follow anybody else's path. You kind of have to make it your own. Um, and make these hard decisions that will either be correct or they'll be wrong and you'll learn from them. So I guess that's kind of the first one. I'll also add that the best piece of advice I ever got was to stop kind of thinking of yourself, thinking of yourself as a startup and think of yourself as a small business because there are just so many more options in terms of how you operate. Startups, it feels like there are two paths. You either go to the VC path, you pour gasoline on it and you either rock it towards the ground or towards the sky or you bootstrap entirely. But if you're a small business, I mean, there are, there are a million options and there are small business loans and kind of things that we haven't um, pursued on that front and haven't really taken action, or action on that advice. But it's, I think, a useful kind of mental model. Uh, two, I would stress the importance of customer discovery. And that's maybe the only good startup advice really worth reading. Uh, there's a book I read on that kind of when we started called Lean Customer Development, I think it was. And it's about the art of kind of asking these questions in a way that's not leading. Um, because it's so easy to frame questions in a leading way, totally subconsciously, and guiding people towards the answer that you want to hear. So it's, you know, about kind of invalidating, actively trying to invalidate your hypothesis, because then if you can't, you're on to something versus trying to validate it. Because if you're trying to validate it, then you'll be successful. You know, you'll tell you'll find people that'll tell you what you want to hear. Uh, so that's incredibly important. And then three, I mean, I don't have any of the answers. Um, but I think I've gotten a lot better in this process about asking the right questions and looking at these constraints as far as time goes, as far as money goes, especially in not pursuing kind of what's fashionable or what's hot, but kind of what's realistic (laughs) and what will at least allow you to kind of get something out there and, uh, Get it tested um, with customers, like we talked about earlier, so that you can kind of improve on it later. Um, but the important thing is just to get something out there. Um, you don't need to spend an arm and a leg on the beefiest machine you can get. Um, you know, it, it's so easy to find blog post after blog post of folks that love gatekeeping and they say, oh, well, you're not a real engineer if you do this or if you do that but everything is a valid tool kind of in your toolbox and it might be your best route to kind of spin up this totally like serverless no code solution that even though somebody on hacker noon um chat on (laughs) or people on hacker news in the comments you know say oh well yeah it's not going to be able to handle two million requests um you know, you really just got to kind of drive forward uh, and test it out. And I'll add one more four is it's going to take longer than you think. It takes a long time to become an overnight success. We're not even, it feels like super close to the point where we could be considered that. But it's always hard to tell where those inflection points are going to be because at a certain point you might lock in to product market fit. Um, I mean, the hard thing for us to tell is because of the nature of the long sales cycle with our customers, it can take six months to a year and a half for a deal to close. We don't really reap the benefits of new things we add until far into the future. So maybe we hit product market fit three months ago and we won't see that until six months from now. But regardless, especially if you're in enterprise, but I mean, even in consumer tech, it takes it takes a long time and you kind of have to be mentally ready for that. And you can't come into it thinking, okay, well, this is my route to a, a quick buck and fame and glory because you're probably going to fail, <laughs> but you also have to stick with it and keep pushing because, I mean, there, every story of, of a company that, you know how they achieved how they got from 0 to 1 million ARR in 6 months or in 1 month even maybe there's kind of a lot under that iceberg so yeah you you might it might be the result of a pivot with like slack is a great example where they were trying to build like an MMO or something like that and they had this side project slack that they decided to double down on and got a lot of uh, traction, but people also often start the clock at a very particular point that makes their graphs look good, and they might be excluding two years where they got nothing. Um, so, you know, folks out there are kind of the authors of their history, and I've tried to do the best I can at painting hours as one that is, has been long, and as one where we've, kind of learned a lot and the product has grown a lot and we will continue to learn and, and grow in that. But uh, yeah, I mean, people like to rewrite their history as one of uh, obvious success from kind of the start. And that's rarely the case.
0: Right. Yeah, it's so easy to work on something for 10 years, but then try to paint the picture like it was an overnight success. But yeah, I see that so often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say the best... The other best um, piece of kind of startup writing I've ever read was Sam Altman's blog post um, "Advice for Ambitious Nineteen-Year-Olds." It, I mean, fortunately, I was nineteen when I read it, so <laughs> it was it was applicable. But I think regardless of any age, it, it provides this alternate way of thinking about risk, and it may seem really risky to embark on that endeavor, but you know you kind of have to reshift how you think about risk and and you know maybe the biggest risk is that you spend um what might be some of the most productive years in your life working on things that ultimately you don't think are important or maybe even think are harmful Um, but also you know later on if you're in your uh 30s 40s um if you and you're starting to really put together kind of your retirement plan or if you have a family then you have a very real risk profile. So maybe it won't be very uh, applicable. But there are a million ways to go about that, um, to go about this process, and you have to figure out what yours is. And maybe the most important thing is to not start something at all. I mean, I think that was another great uh, lecture. I think Sam Altman also gave at one point, which was like, should you start something? And there are a lot of great examples of folks that have had tremendous impact as the thousandth employee of a big organization. The fellow that wrote Google maps was a late hire to Google. I mean, some of the folks that wrote the like button, the embeddable like button for Facebook, which I think is still the most seen piece of software ever written were some, uh, late employees too. So, I mean, that was something I saw coming to Stanford that diminished my, my kind of enthusiasm for startups was that everybody kind of saw that as the only way to make an impact, which just led to a lot of noise. It made it harder for uh, folks that were actually working on things they believed on to kind of m- make it through, push through that noise. Um, there were also a lot of cycles. Like when we first started and we were first trying to raise, it was the crypto hype. And if you weren't a crypto company, then you, were, you felt like a second-class citizen. So... I mean, it, it, there are a lot of things to consider when it comes to if you should start something. But then once you do, you have to kind of have that resolve and have that uh, kind of commitment. And it's always so hard to tell when should you kind of push through this rough period where it feels like things aren't going to get traction and the traction's just on the other side. Or do you pivot or do you close up shop? Um, there are no good answers there. I read a book once that was like the startup manual something or another i don't remember the exact name but it was like 500 pages of for every issue should you be a solo founder or should you have a co-founder should you bootstrap or should you fundraise by using kind of data on thousands of startups they determined for each of these issues you're kind of equally likely to fail regardless Mm -hmm. of which position you took
0: yeah for sure so, Cole, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Nick. It's
0: been a blast. Now, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can check
0: us out at abstractcre.com.
1: Um, if you are kind of interested in, in what we're building as an engineer, um, you can shoot me an email at cole at abstractcre.com. Or if you have any questions, I mean, when we were starting to deal with uh, kind of PDFs, there were a couple of other companies I admired that handled PDFs for totally different applications. Um, one of which was like this homework grading app that we had used in school. Um, but some of those founders were able to help me kind of get a foothold on, on what was worth pursuing or kind of how to think about processing these things. So, you know, if there's any way I can kind of help, I know there's so much that's out there um, that it's hard to determine what's worth learning. Uh, I still don't have the answers on that, but I've had to at least wear a lot of different hats. So (laughs) I might be able to uh, point folks in the right direction. Um, And then on... Oh, and if you know anybody in commercial real estate, obviously point them our way. And then, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at at Cole R. Simmons. Mostly just shitposts. It's not super technical, but... (laughs) you engage with me there, I'll at least respond in earnest.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, drop a couple links there in the show notes to all of that. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. Okay, so we are good to start. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.